Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to The Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and on today's episode, we're talking about compassion and customer service. I think it's a pretty safe bet to say by now in modern society, we've all at one point or another found ourselves at the mercy of a customer service representative. It's a very deliberate choice of phrase I've used there at the mercy of, because at least in my personal experience, if I take stock of all my customer service phone calls and interactions over the years, a majority of them have been relatively unpleasant. Uh, Now that's not to say I haven't had good ones. In fact, I'll even concede it's possible I've actually had more good than bad, but there's something about a negative experience that leaves an indelible impact on your overall perception. Uh, Don't worry, I'm definitely gonna ask about that in a little bit. Uh, Now to be fair, being a customer service rep is a pretty thankless job. Uh, With automated chat services handling a majority of the easy problems, nowadays they're left with hours on end of cranky, upset customers with complicated issues. Uh, Second, probably only to lawyers, I challenge you, the listener, to think of a profession more universally reviled and mocked. And I promise you, they make a mere fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what lawyers make. All right. So with notoriously high turnover, often minimal training and a phenomenon known as compassion fatigue, it's really important to remember that regardless of if you're the one with the issue or the one trying to solve it, whoever is on the other side of that call is just another human being. And human beings are, quite notoriously, a hot mess. Uh, Our conversations, every interaction, in fact, is this intricate dance with ebb and flow, countless social cues and signals to process, with some more easily perceived than others. It's a really challenging thing to navigate. So, So, you know, what do we do? How do we fix this, right? I mean, come on, people, it's 2022. Have you seen the James Webb telescope? Clearly, we're better than this. Uh, Surely, as I sit here and complain, contributing nothing, someone far smarter than I is out there trying to make this whole process a bit more palatable. But wouldn't you know it? Uh, Today's guest is one such individual. Their company, Cogito, has an ingenious solution that has been proven to be super effective, pretty high tech, and relatively straightforward. Uh, They're already making waves right now in the fields of customer service and in some places sales with implications that stretch far beyond its present use cases. Thus, I'm pretty excited to chat with them today. Uh, And we're going to bring them on in just a second. But first, speaking of individuals far smarter than I, with me as always, my co-host and friend, Dr. Alan Cowan is here. Alan, a pleasure as always. How you doing today, bud? Doing great. How are you, Matt? I'm all right. Uh, Real quick, what about you? Customer service calls as a whole, what's your split? Bad versus good? 70-30, 60-40? What do you think? The the good ones go by fast, and then you don't really remember them. They're like literally five minutes long. The bad ones extend for hours. They kind of ruin your day. So you know, a week they can well, ruin a lot. <laughs> I think it's easy to go back and be like, okay, if you count up all the minutes I spent on customer service, most of them were horrible. But that's because the bad calls take so long. I think that's probably why. Very good. All right, we'll dig into that in a little bit. Um, let's get to that guest, CEO and co-founder of Cogito. He is a serial entrepreneur and thought leader with a passion for creating innovative technology that helps people live more productive lives. He has more than a decade of experience as a senior executive and is regularly quoted in Forbes, Fortune, and the Wall Street Journal. Holds an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he was the Platinum Triangle Fulbright Scholar in Entrepreneurship and a Bachelor of Technology from Massey University in New Zealand. Please welcome to the show, the great Josh Feast is here. Josh, it's so good to have you. I can't thank you enough for doing this and being here with us. How are you, sir? I'm great. It's great to be here. It's a wonderful introduction. 
Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, I try. I try. Uh, you guys, I know Kojito is Boston based. You're from New Zealand. But judging uh, by the normal time that we're getting together to do this, I assume you're somewhere in the U.S. Are you in Boston right now? Yeah, I'm just living on the outskirts of Boston. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, super nice to have you here. Uh, before we go uh, too deep into the weeds, I want to turn the, the hands of time back a second, go back to the beginning a little bit. Uh, Kojita has been around for a minute now, and the earliest implementations of a technology uh, date back, from what I could tell, uh, to about 2012-ish, you have your uh, app Companion, which uh, for those who are unfamiliar, is this phenomenal app that nurses, uh, psychologists, and social workers would use to analyze patient audio diaries and detect early signs of PTSD, things like that. Uh, a couple of practitioners even saying the app helped avert suicide. So like absolutely amazing, right? Here's the thing, people. In business, in order to keep going, you got to make money. And, and no fault of your own, inexplicably, there isn't a ton of money to be made in making people feel more well, right? That's a discussion for a whole other podcast. The point is, you guys had to find other areas that the tech could be leveraged, which leads me to my first question. What was the light bulb aha moment that pointed you towards customer service as an area that you guys could have an impact? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, uh, so <clears throat> the history of the company goes back a little bit. So we originally um, were 10 years of basic science at MIT looking at how you can read human behavior in a first psychological state. And then we developed both real-time speech guidance as well as um, voice diary based in um, other types of uh, sort of behavioral signal analysis tools through sponsorship with data. So our original work was focused on how do you help veterans with um, uh, psychological distress, particularly um, uh, you know, PTSD, but also depression. And so the very first place we went that was commercial was actually uh, nurses talking to patients in, in um, chronic disease contact centers. So the first thing we tried to do was help nurses identify um, the presence or the comorbidity of depression and patients with chronic disease. And the logic was if you have depression as well as a like a chronic disease like diabetes, you're less able to look after yourself. Hmm. Uh, and therefore, you can walk to the healthcare system. So there's an economic rationale for providing you with additional care. That was the place we started. And then when we got there, we discovered that that was an interesting problem to solve. It was more interesting and um, more had much broader applicability to help nurses be more um, empathic in their conversations with patients. And so it was that, that those deployments helping nurses interact successfully with patients, yeah. sort of like with your phone bedside manner, that then led us to the broader customer service market after that. Wow. So amazing how those seeds sort of plant themselves and, and grow over time. And here we are. Uh, let's let's get into a little bit of the complexities of customer service in general for a bit. I want to start with um, kind of the difference between a good and a bad experience. We started to tap into that in the intro with uh, Alan talking about how some last longer than others. Uh, the obvious answer, I would assume for a lot of people is, oh, if the customer gets what they want, uh, they win. They're happy, right? But I can honestly say I've had decent experiences where I wasn't offered what I expected going in. Uh, so that's not exclusively the case. There's other ways to have a good experience um you know you can still provide a, a positive chat without giving away the farm as it were so so what what do you think makes a good or a bad experience for somebody what, what's what's the what are the bones behind a good or a bad experience yeah so i mean we um the way we think about it is um that a lot of people's um what people take away from the conversation is how they've been interacted with um, so sort of, it's sort of how you how you feel when you exert is what sort of defines whether it stays in as a positive or a negative memory, and it's um, it, and whether that person fundamentally solved your problem on that interaction or not is important, but not definitely not the whole picture. 
Interesting. Interesting. Alan, uh, we joked in the beginning that the bad ones tend to last longer. Have you had a longer conversation, but they treated you with respect, so maybe you didn't hate it as much? You know, that's true. Um, I think that if they're hearing you, and you, you, you see two sides of it. If they're like really hearing your problems, your frustrations, they jump on them quickly. They're like, well, this is what you're frustrated about. Let me help you. Maybe they give you someone else, but it's the right person. Uh, maybe they bring up the right information. I don't know. So they, somehow they pick up on it. And you also detect that this is a person who's hearing my frustrations. And that also, I think, plays a part. So I think they're correlated. <laughs> like if, yeah. if somebody really is being polite, being responsive, they're probably also addressing your issues more quickly. Yeah, that's a fair assumption. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I do. Want, I am curious because this might take us a little off the reservation. Why? What do we know about why that the bad ones stick around longer? Right? Why? Why, why is it that the 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 negative experiences travel farther? You tell more people about a bad experience than you did about a good one. At least that's what I've heard. Uh, uh, what's the science behind that? What's the thought process behind that? Why are we jerks? <laughs> I think you're, you know, we're fundamentally relationship oriented and uh, social interaction oriented and whether social interaction is going good or bad. I think, I think Josh is probably a hundred percent on point. Like if you, if somebody's being polite to you, you would assume they have good intent, but they're at least trying to figure out your problems. Right. Right. So, you know, <laughs> even if they're, they're not addressing them that quickly, I think they correlate, maybe they are, but if they're not, then you still have the assumption that they are doing a good job. If somebody's treating you with disrespect, you assume they're not doing a good job. And, and, and even if they're getting to it fast, maybe you assume they could have done it faster. Um, and so we're very oriented to these cues. As humans, Like we're, we're just listening to signs of empathy all the time. And I think that's really the discriminator there. Yeah. What, um, oh, were you about to say something, Josh? I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? Oh, well, I was just going to add to it. Um, one of the things that we found, um, which I think is you know increasingly well understood, is also, I think, fascinating, which is we make that decision about whether we're well-treated by the way we're interacted with, not by what people say. So mm -hmm. uh, customer service agent can follow exactly the same script, exactly the same interaction, but milliseconds between how fast they respond to a query of yours will make you decide whether you've been heard or whether that they're listening to you or not, and therefore you'll make a judgment um, that will then possibly stick with you for a long time afterwards. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm hearing is just, and this comes up on every we're a podcast about emotion. It comes up on every episode. <laughs> empathy, empathy is super important, right? That's the whole point, um, and and that's a big part, uh, if not the part of of what you're trying to do and what you are doing over at Kajito. You have uh, these tools that help uh, strengthen people's uh, empathic ability and strengthen those skills. Does uh, Kajito have a scientific philosophy? behind how to do that. Uh, in other words, if someone is feeling bored or frustrated, what do you then uh, coach the agent to say in response kind of a thing? Yeah, um, I guess we do have we have some 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 theories. I, I kind of I kind of think of them as guardrails that make yeah. make us be confident that what we're doing is making a difference. Mm -hmm. So um, so one of the things that we uh, look to do is we only want to deal with concrete behaviors mm -hmm. and we only want to deal with concrete behaviors that are human hearable. Okay. So our basic concept, which is you know, not a crazy concept in, the, you know, in, terms of, in terms of the science, is that we evolve social signals as a communication mechanism for the purpose of coordinating in groups. So therefore, anything that we're trying to do that affects social signals should be something that humans can hear by definition. Mm -hmm. So if we're trying to find something hidden, then 
maybe that's possible. I'm not saying there aren't hidden things, but that's kind of getting out of our bubble, our safety bubble. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing we do. So we're looking for concrete things. The second thing we're trying to do is if you're going to guide somebody in the moment, particularly mm. in the moment where there's kind of a high cognitive load, um, it has to be useful. Mm. Um, and, um, and it has to be something that um, you you can make it actionable and useful in that moment. And so what we try and do from a, even if we're trying to do complicated measurements to tell us how well, how engaged two parties are in a conversation, when we actually give somebody a cue in the moment of a, in the middle of a conversation, it's very discreet and very, very simple. Mm-hmm. So it might just be, you know, to, you know, a, um, you know, continuous speaking, you're going on too much. Right. Yeah. But yeah. it's actually complicated to figure out if somebody's going on too much. And that's actually, pro- I was actually thinking about it. That's actually a complicated thing to figure out. But like the nudge, the nudge you give up the agent in the moment has to be really concrete and really simple. The, nu- the describing it as a nudge is such a great way to uh, to to de- well to describe it because um, as as we're getting deeper into this, I'm I'm becoming more aware of the fact that I didn't uh, for for as wonderful as you said the intro was, I didn't set up necessarily exactly how Cogito does the cool things that it does, and that describes it perfectly. Where uh, there two individuals are on a call, there's the the support agent and the person calling in, and uh, I there's some kind of screen and they have availability to, and as Cogito's uh, system is is analyzing all the things happening in real time just like you said if there's uh, uh uh you're going on too long a little prompt will come in and say hey you you let them talk a little bit maybe that'll be better and um so that's i just wanted to reiterate that and so get that baseline so that those listening who don't exactly that's kind of how it works right uh and there was this great analogy that i came upon uh i was on uh, an article on inc.com inc.com as a couple of years ago but it, it was uh, likening the service to when you drive a newer car with lane assist uh and blind spot monitoring and all these different things that they aren't driving the car for you but enhancing the awareness uh and so the the question i I got from out of that was it challenging to find that balance to, to figure out what constitutes a nudge and ensuring that you weren't uh, overly notifying or, or or overwhelming the agent did that take time to figure out and just i'm curious as to how you arrived there and, and i and, and arrived at this is the exact amount that we need to guide them in the right path uh, excellent question and thanks for the research <laughs> what we do this um <laughs> Yeah, so I, I love I love the sort of lane assist collision avoidance metaphor for what we do because because um, it's it's very similar. Like if you were you imagine you're driving a car, you've had your coffee, you're feeling good, you're you're well trained, and you're not going to get any beeps and nudges and flashing lights, right? Like you're going to just stay in your lane, you're going to drive really well, and that's how it should be, right? Yeah. But if you are tired, the kids are screaming in the back and trying to drift off the lane, that's when it's really helpful, and this stuff can save your life in the car analogy, right? Or save you from uh, a very, creating a very frustrated customer in the customer service analogy, right? Um, and so that's how we think about it. So the, the, there can be a whole bunch of calls where you're getting no nudges from Cogito at all when you're in a conversation. Hmm. However, and you mentioned, you mentioned the compassion fatigue point earlier in the, in the session, yeah. people consume resources when they interact with each other. And so, hmm. so the, so that agents get tired, especially at, you had, you know, something that could be 20 or 30 very similar calls in a row and not every customer has been nice to you, you're going to get tired. And then what happens is, is you're then going to not be able to read social signals anymore because it's, it requires effort to read social signals. And that's when the cues kick in um, and yeah. they help you essentially avoid this frustrated customer because 
you're getting this guidance in the moment. And so to kind of bring this round to the, 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 um, the point you made, we carefully monitor the sort of the frequencies of frequency of interactions or basically nudges that somebody's going to get in the course of a conversation, both in aggregate and then over the course of the day. Um, and we, and a lot of this is, becomes experiential. So one of the advantages we've had is we've been doing this for a while. We've seen, we see a million calls a day, right? And so yeah. over time, we sort of learn the rules of thumb that in general is going to make sure that there's a good experience and somebody's not going to all of a sudden get flooded with a bunch of nudges that they can't do anything about. Have you, and, and this might have been what you were just saying, and I apologize if I, if I, if I didn't catch it, but have you noticed in clients that use, uh, the service for a long period of time require less and less nudges. Like that's the, that's the yeah. idea outcome, right? Like you, you want to train them, not just, you don't want them to have the training wheels on forever. You want to be able to take them off at some point. Yes and no. <laughs> ah, yes and no. Yes and no. No, no. Yes and no. Cause the same again, come back to the, the car driving analogy, yeah. right? Like, you know, I, I, I've been driving for 20 years. I might think I'm a fantastic driver, right? Yeah. But I can still get tired. And I still, and I still, so, so we find that experience agents still need this application and, um, but not on every call, right? So what do you see as you need, as you're, especially getting phone ready? So, you know, with all the attrition and churn, um, that's going on in the industry right now, you know, people have to get phone ready, they have to onboard. Um, so there's going to be kind of more coaching, um, as somebody gets used to interacting with customers. Um, yeah. but even for a, um, a really good agent, um, they're still going to get nudges. In fact, <laughs> one of the things we find is if we deploy to uh, initial population of agents, um, often the really good agents are the ones that get the most instant improvement um, as well. Because even though they're good, they already have mastery of the script and what they're missing is the consistency and behavior. Is that a, a, is that a really great way of figuring out who the good ones even are? Because one of my questions was, is what makes a great representative, right? The idea mm -hmm. is a system can help coach anybody, but it, it, in every, in any line of work, there's going to be people that are, you know, innately, like they have the skill set already. And, and has this not just in, in changing those interactions, has it been a way of helping to identify people that are really strong at this actually? Well, we would like to think so, yes. And yeah. um, so there's you know, a bunch of traditional metrics in, in this particular job, you know, how how effective you are, like what the sort of your post-call survey results are, um, how efficient you are at getting through an interaction. There are kind of traditional metrics that are, um, that are used across the industry. And, 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 you know, I think anybody in the industry would say there's somewhat of a blunt instrument <laughs> for figuring things out because every conversation is nuanced. One of the things that we've, we're very, very proud of is we've been able to build a very sophisticated model that measures, um, we call it customer experience on every interaction and it measures it you know, continuously across every single interaction. So all of a sudden you do have a measure and this is on, and this is basically again a social signals measure. It's based on the rhythm of the conversation and the, uh, between the different parties and what the two parties are signaling to each other by the way they're interacting as to whether it's a good conversation or not. So it's really like a, it's a, it's like biological in some ways, biological <laughs> signaling based measure. And it's, and it's very, very powerful. It, it correlates and predicts all sorts of outcomes. Um, so, in time, we would love something like that to be the measure of whether you're really doing well. Are you oh, go on, Alan? Yeah, that's go for fascinating. It. You know, I, yeah. I just would love to hear more about sort of what what are the most important signals that you see that algorithm picking up on. That's what uh, I wanted to know too, yeah. because <laughs> as I'm listening to that, I'm like, are you parsing the full spectrum of human emotion, or have you whittled it down to for efficiency's sake, like the most common, most important ones that you're picking up, like the call center vibes to look out for, kind of thing. Yeah, um, pleased to share on that one. Um, so, so one of the things that from, for, for a measure like ours to be practical, 
it has to be something that's it's almost universal right? and, yeah. within the context of these types of calls. So what that means is, is that we actually want to look at a, a we don't want to look at the full, uh, like everything you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, to do our CX score, we, we ignore words completely because, well, because the words are going to be different according to every single type of phone okay. call, right? Yeah, They're enough. always going to be different, right? So you need to have a measurement factor that basically goes underneath the words so that you're getting, you're getting at sort of at, at a, a more universal um, uh, signal that, that's more um, generalizable, uh, more easily generalizable. Now, within that, what you're looking for are things that are human hearable. And then the things that really matter that we've found, um, a lot of it is about the um, exchange and the rhythmic back and forward. So it's very much conversation as a dance and these two partners dancing together in a sort of a, in, a, in sync. And that's the biggest, sort of one of the biggest, most underlying signals. And so what we see there's like the simplest, one of the simplest measures, for example, is how balanced somebody is, how balanced is that interaction in the course, in the course of an interaction. It'll be a great example of good rhythm or good interaction. Wow. So interesting. So it's all known. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. For generalizability yeah. and, for, and for the power. But the thing that's amazing is how much, how well it predicts. Like we have customers, we have a customer that you know, deploys us on, I don't know, like 30,000 call center agents. And they, they think, so they've told us that it predicts their customer service um, CSAT scores at over 90%. Wow. Which is amazing. Just looking at what, just looking at facial signal. I have, I have a million questions, but I don't want to cut off Alan because usually his are way more. <laughs> I have a million questions. No, I, I, I'm curious um, if, if that signal is preserved across cultures because uh, when you go to a country like Japan, I remember being there and uh, there was like a big pause between talking um, and people really were more into toward turn taking conversation, not as much interruption. Um, so I wonder if that's something you need to incorporate. Of course, yeah, and so um, you know, I, I um, there, there was a it's an important thing, which is a, a detail I didn't you know completely get into when I said that, which is we we take our model, but we will tune our model for you know general call types and general kind of what what I think of as it's really social roles. But the the big factors we see are social roles, some culture, and then also um, male female as well. Of course, it makes a big difference because again, it's. It's mm. a bit of a biological thing. <laughs> so the, those are the big, the big input factors um, that that we use. But then within that, there's really a tuning of a model rather than sort of the wholesale recreation of a of a whole new model. Do you, yeah, okay. no, I, okay. I, I, I keep going. I could keep, I have a million questions. Okay, let me let me throw mine in real quick because yeah, it yeah, might not be as um. Okay. <laughs> I think I might have been thinking of it the wrong way. One of the things so that same article with the with the uh, car analogy that I was reading um, in, in telling the history, it talks about uh, the health insurer uh, Humana and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the results in the customer pilot was so encouraging. They rolled it out to thousands. Right. And then mm-hmm. it says that they uh, are even piloting it uh, in sales calls. Right. Which is I thought was interesting. And so the thing I was thinking was like, OK, do you have to then tweak it for uh, if the intent of the call is different, like a sales call versus mm-hmm. a customer support call? There's two different end games there. And so how do you have to tweak what it is you're analyzing and coaching on? And I and that was something I was really thinking. But now, as you're saying, it's nonverbal and it's more about the connection and the vibe. But uh, but just, yeah, if the conversation is a dance, are there moves unique to those two different uh, songs, let's say? <laughs> Well, well said. So, so yeah. So relative to that, the measurement piece, no question. And, and so that that really comes down to social roles. And there, there's definitely a big difference between calling in to somebody for the service request and somebody calling you to sell you 
this, that, or the other thing. They're definitely very different social roles. And, and the, if you sit back and think about how those conversations are, of course, they're going to be very different. Who speaks when and who's going to speak quickly and who's going to, um, you know, have the most energy. And, uh, you know, and so there's no, there's no doubt that those are different. Now, one of the things that we do find though that's, I think, really interesting as well as a lot of our customers are very interested in, um, what's called cross sell upsell. So if you call into a customer service line, um, they're going to the want to give you a really good service experience and then offer you something else that might solve a problem that you have. Oh, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, it's a very big deal. Um, and we, we help, we do a lot of support there. And the way we support is not very complicated. We just help make sure the upside service experience is great. <laughs> and then if people are happy with that, then they're going to be more receptive, right? And, um, uh, and so, but so that's, a, that's a case where you have sort of that sales component, but it's within a, an existing social role or a service social role. But, but an outbound selling tally sales, for example, is, is definitely a very different type of interaction. That's a really good point, though. There's something you just said in there of like, if we just make sure the interaction's great, because if you're having a great interaction, you're more likely to go for the sale and, and you know, they'll get you on the hook. And it yeah, just, listen. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense. It reminds me years ago, I, uh, when I worked, uh, I worked for Apple and at the stores, it was like, look, we just want to make everything around the shopping experience. Amazing. Make the service amazing. Let's have amazing experiences. Don't even talk about the product. Just get them in to have a good time, make them feel like they're at home and the sales will come. They'll buy the stuff cause they'll mm-hmm. be comfortable and they'll just go for it and they'll be more inclined to do it. And it's just interesting to hear that applied in this context. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan, I'll step back for one of your million questions. What do you got? <laughs> I like that we're taking a step out of sales or customer service to sales and then broader world. And we started with like nurses and uh, kind of triaging conversations. Um, and, you know, it, it makes me wonder, like, what, what does the psychology say, you know, about what are the kind of signals uh, and indicators? And I'm curious how it compares in these different domains where the psychology doesn't usually study customer service calls, doesn't usually study sales calls. But in general, in interactions, if you, you know, the, what are the big things like antiphonal nap, laughter, let's say, like people laughing together. Huge sign of whether they can be friends or relationships. Do you see that in customer service and sales as well? No, no doubt. Um, so this sort of this sort of joint joint laughter. So we we even have a nudge because part of what we do is we're trying to not just change customer yeah, um, service representatives' behaviour. We're also trying to encourage them and make their lives better, and yeah. make their jobs better, and and you know more fun. It's not it's not easy as I think uh, you guys said at the start, right? Yeah. It's not, not the world's easiest job. So when we see um, like really positive moments in an interaction, we'll give somebody a nudge, which is you know the visual equivalent of a high five. <laughs> well done, right? Yeah, and, and we absolutely look for that, that, that those kind of moments of, of sort of joint activity and joint that. Totally, and then you you see uh, <laughs> people sort of. Well, frustration and, and sort of all the speech positive stuff, I think, is totally understudied in psychology. Um, but looking at, you know, sort of the literature, um, you would see sort of uh, uh, little digs or not people not really reacting to each other's critiques in the right way. Um, and so the way that critiques are often delivered is like, uh, to be polite, you're kind of teasing, right? It's kind of humorous uh, when you want to when you want to deliver sort of negative information in a way that's polite. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a really big sign of whether like a relationship is going to fall apart, and I don't know if it's true for customer service as well, <laughs> is uh, is uh, when that information is delivered in a way that is not meant to be humorous at all, <laughs> and is just very serious. 
Um, so I'm curious if you see that as well. It feels like a very personal example you gave there, Alan. Are you all right? Are you okay? Are you good? Are you... I, yeah, no, everything's been, uh, people tease me all the time and I view that as a good thing. That's the, that's the key thing. Maybe, maybe that's a good framing for me. Very good. All right, I didn't mean to interrupt your actual legitimate intelligent question. I just had to make fun of you a little bit. Well, it is, it is, a, it is a good question. I think, um, I think this probably speaks to, um, I think the, almost like the, the gap between like what's possible commercially with technology and what we aspire to get to. Because some of these are subtleties that, you know, are, are, I think probably still a way away for even for a company like you. And this is, and this is all we do, right? Like <laughs> we just do this, right? This is like our whole world, but it just, because again, it comes to the, you kind of, kind of, I've got to come back to my sort of my, my boundaries I've created for myself. Right. I have to be able to hear it. I have to be able to get a whole bunch of smart people to agree that they can hear it for me to trust that it exists. Yeah. So it has to be repeatable. It has to be something that I can take across millions of interactions and work. And then I have to be able to resolve it into not just being aware of what's going on, but also an action that I can specifically think of that the agent can take to make a change. So I'm, I'm agreeing with you and also saying in some sense, it's, uh, it's like where we would like to get to, but we don't, we haven't even had to go to that level of sophistication necessarily mm -hmm. to improve conversation so far. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I want, uh, just to go back for a second to that car analogy, the thing I love about it so mm -hmm. much is it also helps assuage some concerns because you know people hear AI-driven tools and they immediately assume, that's it, we're all doomed, Skynet is here, they're taking our jobs, right? And it's like, this is very clearly not a replacement, it's an enhancement, it's an augmentation. Uh, but, but just hearing you talk in that last bit, what is it besides the ethics and our desire to continue to exist as a species, but what is it that stops this from one day reaching a point where it no longer needs to coach humans because it can do the job better than humans? Is that, yeah. is that an inevitable thing or is that just the realm of science fiction? What do you guys think? I mean, we're getting customer service automation every day, right? And more and more. And I, I, I don't know the statistics. Um, I assume more people need customer service over time. And so that there's more roles for um, actual humans too. But I also feel like a bigger proportion over time is probably automation. Um, and I'm not the expert on that. So <laughs> I, would, I would give that to Josh. But I assume that's going to increase over time. Yeah. What do you think, Josh? It's, well, it's a very important question. I can tell you the data so far. So the data so far says that um, the number of call center agents that you need in, in the society yeah. goes up with GDP. <laughs> and it doesn't ever seem to stop, no matter how much you invest in self-service, whatever self-service technology you're using, be it mail order catalogs, chatbots, <laughs> IVR systems. And, 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 and one of the reasons, this is my own, like, personal opinion about this now, is that people always want service from other humans. Because <laughs> yeah. societies also get richer, and as they get richer, they also want more service. Right? I want somebody to solve my problem for me. Yep. I don't want you to give me a tool, so I solve my problem with your tool. <laughs> right? And so it's just sort of like, I think, sort of, a, so that's kind of my opinion. So that's, that's sort of based, look, it's almost like a look back is what I'm giving rather than a look forward in terms of, you know, where technology can go. What I will say is that a company like Kajido, Although, um, is primarily oriented around trying to augment the human condition. It's just kind of our whole thing rather than, rather than really, we're not the company that's trying to replicate the human. It's just not what we are trying to do as a company. Um, and so, um, so really, like, I think that one of the challenges 
in terms of replacing human-based contacts in a reps is one that you, one of the points you opened with, which is these conversations are getting much more complicated, much yeah. more emotional yeah. than they ever were before. That's the problem is how difficult the conversations are not because, because the easy ones are absolutely getting picked off by websites or chatbots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what that means is that for me, at least, to get to these really complicated um, conversations, you need an AI that has like a real model of the world, <laughs> which is now way beyond like my capabilities yeah. or my, my company's humble capabilities. <laughs> but we have talked about on this show before. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's something people have done. Yeah, maybe some others on your show are doing that. <laughs> yeah. I think this would be good just to look at um, sort of, you measure frustration. I imagine people's frustration when they're talking to an automated agent must be so much higher than humans, just on average. Like that must be oh, sure. a huge yeah. statistic oh, you can yeah. point to. Yeah, and then obviously if you've had a poor interaction, you're going like to come to the poor human customer service agent even more ticked off, yeah. which doesn't make it any easier. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Just talking about the difference between a human interaction and, a, and a, uh, interacting with a, an AI system for the simple ones and whatnot, mm. uh, what happens – do you ever encounter someone that you're trying to coach or nudge? And I know you're not personally out there coaching them one-on-one -on -one, just for the record, but I'm saying in this whole process, have you ever encountered an individual where you guys, the, the system's doing what it's meant to do. It's detecting these things. It's giving the cues, but that person isn't convincingly responding to the cues. It goes, Hey, be more yeah. empathetic. And they're like, yeah, whatever. They don't know how to do it. Like, do you ever run into that wall? Is that something you've seen where it's like, you're telling people to try to understand how it feels, but they aren't convincingly doing it or they're doing it in a way that actually upsets the customer because it sounds like it's 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 um it's not a genuine concern is that is that something you've had to solve for or encountered at all yeah it's a, a very perceptive question yeah um the um so the way we think we do this is so we will basically we'll put it we'll detect the need to change a behavior or you know the, the equivalent of you going off out of your lane, right? And, um, or you're getting, you're getting too close to the car in front of you, right? So you, you're getting, you're getting this nudge disappearing. And then just like in that car, that's going to stay there until you come back into your lane or you leave sufficient distance from the car in front. So what that means is, is that we, we know your, to what extent you're taking advantage of that nudge. So we can, we can, the point is we can tell, yeah. we can tell that some people, and we, we have very good visibility as to essentially to what extent um, any given agent is taking advantage of the nudges provided to them. Um, and then we can also map that to both outcomes for the call, but also mm -hmm. our continuous measure of customer experience. Wow, um, so, and, and absolutely you're right. I mean, yeah. we work in very diverse populations of people with all, you know, Oh, you know, some people are not built to be customer service reps, <laughs> but they nevertheless have that job, and and, and that will, you know, and, and we will see that in the data. Um, um, that is what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, that also, you know, it speaks to. I mean, some people might not be good customer service agents now, but with the right training, they could become ones. So, I was, you know, you talked a lot about sort of real time feedback. I'm wondering how much you also do that's retrospective, that like after the call. You pick out the moment when something went wrong and you show them and you're like, this is what you could have done better. That's right. Yeah, very, very good point. Well, so well, first thing, and I, uh, this might be, you know, possibly more of a question for you, Alan, but like, I think we we have the understanding that, that even though that people ability to detect social signals does vary from human to human. Uh, and certainly we know it varies within a human according to fatigue levels. But we, I think there are possibly some people that... Um, they just don't read social signals very well at all. <laughs> Maybe so, so that's probably the example. Not everybody is, you know, fully, you know, fully made for that type of role. 
Um, but to um, post back, yes, so um, absolutely. So the, the, the thing that's sort of most um, uh, that people think of first when they think of Kajita, if they know us, um, is this real-time in-call guidance because that's one of the yeah. things that we sort of popularized within our little sphere of influence. <laughs> um, um, but the system does a lot more than that. Um, and uh, so it provides you know, visibility for supervisors. It also provides automatic um, uh, uh, coaching plans as well. So, so if you're an agent, you can it, it'll automatically sort of help you identify like where you need to improve. It'll then tell you how much you've improved, and it'll also um, align the nudges that you get to help you improve across the areas as a weakness. So there's like a whole kind of coaching system that comes with wow. uh, the real time in core magic. <laughs> that makes a lot <laughs> like of sense. Expect. Okay, yeah. that, that's really cool. Now, I, in yeah. terms of improvement, I mean. It, there aren't that many psychology interventions, honestly, that have been proven to improve empathy. But here's the promising thing is that people reliably do get more empathic over time as they age. So we're obviously mm -hmm. learning, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we're close to a point where we can start to figure out what is it that people are learning from and then show them more of those examples. And I think that that's going to mm -hmm. be a really promising approach. Yeah. Certainly anecdotally, some of the agents have said that they do better with their conversations with their partners and spouses after they use our system. They tell us that anecdotally. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, smile. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, that's got to be a nice feather yeah. in the cap. You yeah. got to enjoy yeah. hearing that for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you know, Josh, keep me honest here. I assume that in order to train your software and enable your coaches to coach, uh, one must first learn, you know, the, the effective ways and how to provide that support. Did that process yield any major revelations? Like, you know, what do people tend to care most about or, or just in general, were there unexpected learnings in, in, in this journey of, uh, of bringing this all and making it as great as it's become? Um, I, yeah, I, I, it's sort of funny that, cause, um, you know, I, I think the path of the company has been it's been a long path, right? So, like the the um, you know the original basic science behind the company, which was created by my co-founder Professor Sandy Pentland, he did that over ten years, which culminated in the end of his research period, which was two thousand and seven. And that's when I picked it up, and with Sandy and my other co-founder Ali, took it through DARPA to turn it into a technology, and then since we've proven it um, now commercially. So I think the thing that's always been a surprise is how well it works. <laughs> yeah, because we never knew. Like we never knew when we started. Right, there's experimental results on yeah. MIT students <laughs> and others, but you know, like that's it's university studies. And and then you know, then we then we find out that you know we can we can do it on our more specialized populations. And now we we run on yeah, said, more than a million calls a day. Right. So so it's uh, I think that's always yeah. been the biggest aha is the power of social signals and how much they influence us yeah. and how little we realize it. And also how little, like how um, how surprised people are still are when we talk about this. Right? Yeah. Really, <laughs> I have another communication channel, and it's incredibly influential in terms of my attitude to what just happened to an interaction I just had. It's just still a not a well understood thing, I think. And um, but now it's proven at really at really large scale that is the case. It's amazing. Um, this, this is flying by, by the way, believe it or not, we're almost done. I was, I'm blown away by how quickly this went. This has been so much fun. So we're coming in the home stretch, but, uh, Alan, you and I just went off on a tangent, an episode or two ago about how, uh, important the multiple points of data have been and, and how you've been able to leverage all these different things to the ticks and, and visual cues and in association with the sounds of our voice and vocal bursts. And, and I don't know, we talked about it. So. 
I tried to formulate an intelligent question about how he's managed to <laughs> pull all of this from just the audio, but I wonder if yeah. you have a better way of phrasing that or, or proposing that, or if that alone is a great question. Because I know you, because <laughs> you, Josh, you've done a great job of kind of telling us about like what well, we had to find out that we could hear it and then prove that other people could hear that it worked. But I, but that part still blows my mind, especially coming out of a conversation about uh, what we can do with so many data points. It's like, look what he's doing with one. With just the voice. <laughs> so, uh, just the signal. Yeah. So Not that, even, I mean, just the voice, but just the nonverbal parts seem to be like really um, interesting. Really right? powerful. Really powerful. Uh, yeah. So it's yeah. fascinating. And we, yeah. yeah. And I, I want to be clear, like we do, the other, yeah, but apart from not LCX school, we do look at both content and we call lexical, non-lexical <laughs> signals. But, um, but, but, um, but it is incredible how much the nonverbal ones are powerful. So I'll, I'll answer the question about, I guess, um, multiple multiple signals yeah. or um so we did so one of our original studies we did when we were doing in the, in the DARPA phase the applied technology development phase um is we we took we did a, a study and we looked at what would happen if we took a whole bunch of other signals and we put it together and what we found this is our own study so maybe others subsequent to this have had different results but ours was that um, it, it's definitely helpful to have, for example, visual and audio together. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. But if you have audio, it doesn't add that much to it. <laughs> that's just what we found. Like we found that we were, you know, pretty good with just audio. And then one of the things, um, that of course is interesting is that like, we do a lot of stuff on phone calls. So on phone calls, you, we, we have all learned to send our social signals through the phone, right? So, so it is there, right? So, um, so, you know, to, to the extent possible. So that's what we found. Um, and that's in terms of characterizing or measuring how well the conversation's going. Mm. Um, and, and, and my own opinion on this, again, is, you know, in, in the world of Josh's opinion is that one of the great things about voice is it is a communication mechanism, right? That we're using, right? Like, you know, I mean, Yes, it is also a communication mechanism, but like we really, this is like a really sophisticated one that we've evolved over a really long time. So it makes sense that it's rich yeah. and that there's a lot of signal in it. Um, there we go. That's my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I, I agree 100%. I think, uh, in terms of, you know, context, it really matters. Like if your people are reaction, reacting to videos, um, typically they're, they're going to show most of their reaction in their face and not, not too much in their voice. So that sometimes people laugh out loud and so forth. And then if there's, you know, if people are listening to a presentation, then they don't really have the opportunity to use their voice as much. So it really does depend on context. But while people exactly. are talking, there is so much information in their voice. Of course, um, you might want to know whether there's contrasts between what they're voice is doing and what their face is doing. For example, when people are sarcastic, then there's mm -hmm. contrasts. Um, and that's not just between the voice and the face, their uh, speech prosody and, and, and the face, but between speech, like the tone of what they're saying and also what they're actually saying, like the, uh, the, the semantics. Mm -hmm. If you get a contrast between the semantics and the tone, there's probably sarcasm. That's, uh, you know, all of these things are really nuanced and difficult to pick up on. And I don't think people had good embeddings of, um, of the individual signals that are good enough to really make these higher level inferences until recently or mix them together appropriately until recently. Uh, I think people I in, for facial expression, people focused on really out, like really strong, uh, simplistic categories of expression, like anger, no, the six basics, anger, sadness, happiness, surprise, disgust, and fear. And those expressions are not ones you see very much during conversation, <laughs> except for maybe right. happy, right? Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, they don't, people look at now confusion, boredom, and we know that these are different expressions that 
don't look like the basic six at all. Um, or, yeah. you know, uh, awe as being a positive one, even, or kind of interest, which doesn't look like happiness. Um, and so, and so it's, it, it, once you get into the granularity of it, it actually, uh, it becomes more interesting to look at the face. Um, and it becomes more informative to mix different modalities is, is what we find. That makes total sense. I believe that. Yeah, I mean, when we were doing, you know, back in again, back in my DARPA days a little while back, like again, the, some of the face recognition stuff wasn't just wasn't sophisticated. Right. So we were, you know, very. We were what we were looking at as well was just trying to figure out agitation and mm. yeah, overall excitement. So we were really looking at gross movement. Um, it's something that you know it, was, it definitely added. By the way, like just doing that was good. Yeah. I just you just didn't need to. Um, you, you didn't have to have it. <laughs> let, yeah. let me ask you this: as we're coming into the home stretch, one of the things I love to do towards the end of the episode is uh, is kind of look a little further down the road, blue sky, imagine you know the brightest of bright futures. And uh, as we're talking about uh, these these different. Uh, points of data that we can pull from, you know, Josh, you, you, you mentioned, I forget if it was that one article, I read a bunch of articles, I can't remember which one I saw it in, but the dream being to take advantage of this for all kinds of conversations, negotiations, meetings, dating experiences, things like that. And in general, uh, we've all transitioned to a more remote world with a lot of people finding themselves not just on phone calls, but spending a majority of their day in video conferences. We're now more so than ever before. There is a way to sort of pull this data and see it. And I'm curious, uh, you know, has that led to conversations at Cogito? I know you've said, you know, this is what we're doing right now. But have you guys sat around and thought like, hmm. Well, how could we push this out even further, you know? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm basically asking you to tell us your secret yeah. roadmap, but I mean, what can you, what can you say, or what can you just, as Josh, just talk about, you'd like to see and like new potential use cases and things you'd want to explore to help make that dream real. Uh, yeah. Um, um, another great question. So I, I'll tell you about our near term, like a near term big dream, and then maybe I'll clear the big dream. So our near term big dream um, I sort of think of it as the emotion intelligent organization or the empathic organization. And so that's the, that's really the idea that it's, it's actually like, it's actually using this type of data to improve the practice of management. Because what I see is that you have, this is actually why I founded the company in the first place. You have these huge organizations that have the best of intentions, right? The CEOs of those organizations, they want the best for the people. They want the best for their customers. They want, they want the best for the shareholders as well. But they're, they're very genuine, right? But there's not the capability to bring the human factor into a large organization. It's, it's, um, and so if you, so my first big focus is how can you, if you can bring what well, I've referred to as human data, which is basically information about psychological state and inject it in, then you can manage people much better. And that comes to the very simple ideas of if somebody's tired and they've had Five calls of the pressure to customer, give them a rest. You know, it's not that complicated, right? right? And then what we discovered is that you can deliver that data and that one of the great ways to deliver that data, which saves you the whole management overhead of having to, you know, coach somebody by sitting down beside them, you know, two or three hours a week is have the AI do it right for you. So that, so for me, that's the first thing. And, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I believe the impact of doing that will be absolutely profound. Yeah. Because we spend a lot of our time working and organizations, big organizations are only getting bigger from what I can see, right? Yeah. They're only getting bigger. So if these organizations that are really important in society are, are better at managing their own people because they have access to human data and they're more pleasurable and positive to interact with, so if you 
those are customer, those organizations, then sort of overall net happiness must increase. So that, for me, that's like the big kind of immediate focus. Um, and that's kind of what I wake up in the morning and think about, right? Is how, how do we get from here to that, you know, ultimate yeah. kind of oh, nice sort of near term, near term sort of goal. Beyond that, so now we're kind of, um, yeah. sort of outside the world of work. Let's get crazy. I, um, I, I let myself be a bit guided by what I think is appropriate in terms of what society's ready for. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you like a classic example, right? Um, we, we, one of the, the very first thing we did at this company, um, was we tried to detect depression from the sound of voice, right? We actually went and do the hardest thing before we did the easy thing, which is really dumb, but that's what we did. <laughs> right? And, and we did that. And, and by the way, we were really successful, right? Yeah. It really, really worked, right? And not in every case, because not everything's not always expressed in the voice, but where those symptoms, symptoms are expressed in the voice, we could detect them very effectively. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that deploying something like that is a minefield of what's socially acceptable, right? And I can come up with a lot of, I said, is, is, it, is it a good thing to detect depression in a patient with chronic disease and then help them so they don't you know, get really, really sick? Yes, of course it is. But how are you going to do that in a way that's socially acceptable, right? And, and it's not clear, right, how to yeah. do these things well, especially 10 years ago when we tried to do it, right? And so for me, a lot of the applications of, what we do, but you know, all the other sort of social behavioral um, sort of approaches to try to understand humans is what what are we ready for? Because yeah. um, I'm not clear. Like we we did dating in the lab again 15 years ago, yeah. right? And it, it's really effective. <laughs> you can tell if somebody's going to exchange phone numbers by the way <laughs> they interact. This has been really well showed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but do, do you want that along with you on your date? I don't know. Right. Yeah. And, and that's really, I think, what it's actually just so, comes And I often, I often refer to that as the slipperiest of slippery slopes on this show. Yeah. As you were talking about, Justin, just like, uh, okay, you could see uh, uh, one of your employees is tired. Give them a break. And my mind immediately extrapolates, okay, if I got a team of like 100 people and my little indicator shows me 10 of them are tired, I didn't have to walk around, observe 100 people and find that te- my that's machine fine. told me they're tired. I can signal to them to get a break. I was like, that's pretty cool. And then I kept going and I was like, well, everyone, nobody wants to go back to the office. We're all working remotely and all the managers are complaining that they can't manage appropriately from a distance. Yeah. Like, well, now you could. But then I went, all right, but then is that a surveillance state? Are they watching everything? Right, exactly right. And I was like, oh, well, no, yeah. uh, well you're so right. Back. And so like, it's yeah. such a juggling act. You yeah. can. I always say like, you know. One of the things you can monitor from voice, you know, you might, you might be able to guess at is something like wellness, right? But you, you definitely don't want to monitor somebody's wellness, right? Because that's their personal private information, right? And so what really what you might want to do is monitor whether they're having stressful experiences externally imposed on them. And I think that might be okay. That's interesting. Right? That might be okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you're delivering feedback, and I think this is the challenge, is how do you take something yeah. like that and actually give somebody an actionable item that they can, you know, and, and, and intervene in real time. I think that is a real challenge and it's going to sound really creepy and invasive a lot of the time. Um, but I also think there's like a shift in sort of history happening right now where these measures of wellness are not meant for immediate feedback as an input, but meant for an as an output, right? We, because we can actually optimize for abstract things with AI and with technology now, totally different world, right? Now we can do this non-invasively. Um, and because we're not giving any feedback, nobody's going to necessarily know that, uh, you know, that like there's uh, something that is uh, tracking you and, and it's not going to leak out. Like if you give feedback, then that destroys the privacy, 
right? Yeah. That somebody can see that feedback. If you do it without giving feedback and you anonymize it and you aggregate it, you can now have this metric that is used as an output, as something that is uh, totally optimizable, right? <laughs> and, and only now because we have AI systems that can optimize for abstract objectives like that. So I think the world is changing there. And I think that wellness is something we can really look into. And that's part of our goal. So that, no, yeah. no, absolutely. Right. And I am, um, you know, I think again, it's, it's the two things. It's like what's technically possible. And I think what's been technically possible has been way ahead of being what's socially acceptable for a very long time in this particular field. And then what, I mean, how do you come up with like practical ways that you can benefit like society in, at large scale, right? Which yeah. is what you ultimately trying to do. And so that, that when you, I mean, the perfect example, it might be completely, um, not acceptable to measure somebody's individual wellness, but it may be totally fine to say this region of the country is really not well. <laughs> I don't know who specifically it is, but like that's a problem, <laughs> right? you know, or, you know, this, or this kind of, you know, and so I, I think that, that, that point about, um, finding the practical, acceptable um, uh, applications is, is just about it. In a lot of ways, just about as hard as, as coming up with the models in the first place, yeah. <laughs> my, in my experience. Yeah. Well, I don't need a whole lot of, there's an entire region of the country that I have a personal opinion is not that well, but we don't have to, that's a different, <laughs> podcast, a different conversation. Those are my thoughts, not anybody else's, all right? Um, I, I got to wrap this up. This was the fastest 52 minutes I've ever had on the show. Uh, Josh, so much fun and such a great conversation. Uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, making the time to hang out with us today slash tonight and just being here on the show. So, such a treat to have you here. Thank you. Truly appreciate it. I mean that. Um, everybody, do yourself a favor. Check out CogitoCorp.com, C-O-G-I-T-O-C-O-R-P.com for a bunch more information. Uh, we scratched the surface of all the, the really cool stuff they do over there and go take a look and uh, uh, be wowed just like I was. Uh, thank you, of course, to my co-host and friend, Dr. Alan Cowan, for another great conversation. Thank you, Alan. Always a pleasure. Uh, and of course. And lastly, uh, you know it's coming. That's right. Get ready. Here it is. Thank you to you world's greatest podcast listener i appreciate you coming back for another round i look forward to doing many more with you down the road always a treat with you uh, and hey if i'm doing the outro it must be time for me to tell you that we have an email address and i'd like you to send some questions send them all this way thoughts comments whatever it is you can find us at the feelings lab at hume.ai that's t-h-e-f-e-e-l-i-n-g-s-l-a-b a little at squiggly hume h-u-m-e dot like a period not the word dot and the letters AI. Make it a great question, and it just might make it into our next listener questions episode. No promises, but it's a very distinct possibility. Uh, that's going to do it. Farewell for now from all of us at the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody, and please stay safe out there. <laughs>